Well, welcome to another episode of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And today I'm joined by my good friend and sparring partner, the ETF whisperer from Toowoomba, from God's country, Andrew Wyland from DP Wealth up in Fair Queensland, Fortress Queensland, as it's now known. And Andrew, as many of you will know, is a regular partner of mine. Actually, to be quite fair, I'm a regular partner of his on the call with Koshi on every other Wednesday. So we have a bit of fun every Wednesday or every other Wednesday talking about some ETFs, some stocks and sparring a little bit uh, in a friendly manner. But Andrew has a wealth of knowledge, not only on ETFs, but also on the market. He's been around a long time and DP Wealth is a fantastic business up in Toowoomba. And he's also a great supporter of local theatre and some other charities up there. So I'm constantly reminded by his Facebook posts what a doyen of the arts he is. So there are many facets to the Whisperer. Is that a big enough introduction, Andrew? Uh, Henry, I'm, I'm blushing and thankfully it's audio for many different reasons, <laughs> but uh, in particular my blushing at the moment. Thank you, my friend, for having me on. And I'm sorry I had to uh, call you out on national TV to get you back. You'll get me back rather. So thank you. Uh, that That's fine. I'm, I'm not sure we should call Ausbiz na national TV, but I'm sure they'll be flattered anyway. But just before we kick off, I've got to remind all our listeners that this is general advice only. So please do your own research, contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas or insights in this podcast. So talk to your financial advisor. Now, Andrew, you've sent me lots of things that you want to talk about. And there were some things that I wanted to talk about, but we'll stick with yours because they're far more interesting than the things that I wanted to talk about. And we have talked ad nauseum or ad infinitum on qual which is your one etf to rule them all so we're not going to talk about qual today we're going to talk about some of the other etfs that you really like and you've recommended not only to your um your own clients but also that you may hold yourself so so tell us about the first one the first one you you sent me today was vgad tell me about vgad my friend Indeed. So just to set the scene very briefly, Henry, three ETFs. And when we're looking at ETFs, three main areas a core, you know, people should consider holding in their portfolio, a satellite, something that sort of orbits around the core, but isn't necessarily something that you're going to hold on to forever. And then finally, a factor. And we haven't really had much of a chance to talk about factors, but if you look at the growth in factors, it's a huge growth market. So we'll come to that in a second. But coming to your mm -hmm. question around core, so VGAD is indeed a international ETF. So here in Australia, we think we're pretty we think we're pretty good. You know, we've got our four banks and we've got our two retailers and we've got our uh, two uh, resource companies. If you add all them together, they're about 50, 55% of the total index. So it's, as you would well know, my friend, concentration risk galore. And so if we take it a step further, Australia is but 2% of the world. We are but a minnow. So mm -hmm. the whole idea of having VGAD, the Vanguard product, is indeed what you're doing is you're giving yourself exposure to the other 98% of the world that for a lot of investors passes them by every day. It's got about $1.7 billion under management. It is importantly hedged. So if the Aussie dollar is doing whatever the Aussie dollar is doing, you don't really mind because that's Vanguard's problem. 
if you think you can pick where the dollar is going to you and more power to you, there is a cousin VGS. So VGS unhedged, we suggest VGAD. It's cost 21 basis point, 2.21 of a percent, VGS 0.18. So in other words, you are paying but three basis points to have that hedging covered, which as you and I both know is just ridiculously cheap. It's got 1,504 holdings and the average company is about $143 billion in size. So, you know, we're talking, well, what's CBA? CBA is about 180, 190 billion, but it's, they're big companies. And it's predominantly IT, financials, healthcare, and it's predominantly the US, Japan, and also the UK. It's up about 11% per annum over the last three years. So... Now, can I can I just stop you there? Because you, you you talked to begin with about the how the concentration risk with those stocks that we have in Australia, the, the four banks, two two retailers, a couple of resource stocks. You know, chuck in CSL, and, and you're kind of done. This one has nearly seventy percent focused on the US. Is, isn't that concentration risk as well? Isn't that you just nice you just got thing. more stocks? I thought this was a nice interview. I thought, you know, we'd sort of put the sparring aside just for just for once. But no, that's fine. Uh, uh, I'm just asking the question. It's a valid question. <laughs> Don't get all defensive, Andrew. So if we have a look at the broader market, as in the broader global share market, so, you know, add up all the various indices together, we get to around 70% of the broader global market is indeed the US. So because what this is following is it's following the Morgan Stanley Capital Index, the MISCI, X Australia. And when we add up all those various exchanges and you sort of get a percentage, we all know, despite the US best efforts at the moment with all of the things that are plaguing them, they are still an economic behemoth. So you're right, like in the context of if you are worried about the US, and with due respect, I think there's plenty to be worried about, then in fact why wouldn't you then start looking at maybe like a European one or you might look at an Asian one? But again, that's more into satellite land more broadly. The world 70% of the economy is the US, hence 70% here. Um, yeah, and let's face it, Europe and Asia both also have their problems too. So um, I, I guess that... Sorry, I was pretty keen on Europe there for a little while, but that energy crisis, that's, that's a real issue. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a real issue. I, I don't know if it's actually an energy crisis, is it? Let's let's face it. I think crisis is taking it too far. It's energy hostage. Let's face it. Yeah. Um, in the UK, the energy crisis was brought about by the lorry drivers not wanting to go back to England, and who can blame them? It's chilly this time of year, and uh, not going back to the UK. Uh, because they'd been kicked out by Brexit and left there because of COVID. Uh, the, similarly, with the European energy crisis, you get the feeling that the winner from all of this is Vladimir. Vladimir Putin is basically now in charge of Europe because he holds all the gas supply through the new pipeline, which bypasses the Ukraine, which sometimes gets on with Vladimir, sometimes doesn't. So you kind of get the feeling that this this is a bit super trampy, isn't it? This is crisis what crisis. This is actually hostage what hostage. 
and rather than crisis, what crisis? But I diverge. I let, let's let's go back to VGAD mm. and talk about that. So it's performed pretty well over the last three years, according to your numbers. Yeah, look, we, and that does take into account the dare I say it excitement over the last eighteen months, <laughs> but. To us, it's just been a really solid, you know, and I think I've discussed this before, the idea of a barbell. You can sort of have all sorts of different barbells, but at one end of the barbell, you've got your Aussie equities exposure. And look, I like ETFs, but equally so, there is nothing wrong with just having a diversified Australian share portfolio. And for those playing at home today, we've even got a couple of Australian shares that we're going to talk about. Yeah, we have. How exciting is that? So there's nothing wrong with having a portfolio at one end of your barbell of just direct Aussie shares. But at the other end, um, whereas in the past, old Andrew would have gone, well, you know, uh, NAB's our sort of overseas exposure or BHP's our exposure or Lendlease or Westfield or, you know, that 1990s mindset because it was too expensive, it was hard to get the hedging under control or if I was paying a fund manager with due respect, it's 2% per annum and there's an 86% chance that they can't even meet the market, never mind beat the market. Whereas today I have these low cost tools in my in my tool belt, tool kit. And so that's the other end of the barbell. Aussie equities one end, uh, international equities at the other. See, I, I, I like your I like your barbell. I like your core and satellites. I, I also like having this is where I sort of feast, is I, I like having the dinner party stocks, the ones that you can say, I've just got onto this hot thing. And um you know, I, I do like the, the life-changing new technology side of things as well. So I'm not a com- complete ETF convinced person, but I do really respect the whole barbell, the whole core thing and, and the satellite thing. So let's talk about the satellite. Let's talk about the Georgia satellite, or the Sputnik, if you like. What's, uh, what have you got for your satellite holding? And we're not going to talk hack because we talked that on the, um, the telly the other week with that. Uh, our friend Koshi. Indeed. And so Hack, you know, whereas Qual is the one ETF to rule them all, I don't know what sort of the sister or accompanying one is, but Hack is certainly in there. And, you know, again, from a disclaimer point of view, I think you mentioned in passing a number of these I own personally. But uh, the one that I wanted to talk about today is Fuel, F-U-E-L. And again, sort of tying in nicely with last time we were saying some of these ETF codes are crackers because there's no misunderstanding as to what this does uh it basically owns global energy companies so again we are sport for choice here in australia you know you've got woodside you correctly called santos in their in their bad times as in that it was a great buy and you've been vindicated in that henry i like beach and despite their product production numbers uh, a couple of days ago you know there's probably still not a bad investment but it's just Australian focused. So I actually want exposure to the broader um, cartel, for the want of a better term. So Chevron, Exxon, Total, Royal Dutch Shell, BP, etc. And that's what this ETF gives you. It's about 360 odd million under management. Again, it is hedged if you're worried about the dollar. That MER, that management expense ratio, is probably a little bit more pointy-ended. It's 57 basis points. But again, for what you're getting and the exposure, the hedging expect, etc., 47% the US, 11% Canada, about 10% the Netherlands. And the performance over the last 12 months has been a ripper. It's up about 50-odd percent. 
But interestingly, Henry, down 1% per annum over the last five years. Yeah. And so why am, I, why am I suggesting that people look at this? So as we're aware, is it, I think it's later this week, actually, we have uh, COP26 um, in, um, in Glasgow. Do you know um, why it's called COP? Now, I did read that. Can you share that with us again? Because I can't remember. It's, it's the Conference of Parties. That's right. The 26th meeting. 26th. So go there you this. go. Tuesday and night trivia night. Indeed. If you if that doesn't help you win the pub trivia, then we can't do anything to help you. We've, <laughs> we've done our best. We've done our best. Um, so basically, the idea here is that we suspect, without you know being Nostradamus, that there's obviously a lot of uh, aspirational targets are going to be set, and lots of pressure put on these fossil fuel companies to not be doing any more drilling. Uh, I might add, a number of these companies are reporting their profits this week. So that's something interesting in itself. But the broader thematic is that with oil WTI at around $80, $85 a barrel, highest level since 2014, they are awash with cash and they're about to have the handcuffs put on them from a CapEx expenditure point of view. And so there should be a heap of dividends and capital returns coming back from these companies. And so to me, there's that's the shorter term imperative but the other thing, I guess, and you and I have had this discussion with Koshi a couple of times around the ESG side, ESG is a thing. Like, there's no doubt about it, ESG is a thing. For every $2 invested in Australia today, over $1 is going into ESG monies. And I get a more mature client come in, couldn't care less about ESG, frankly, whereas I get a younger client, under 40, kid you not, first question they ask, how are you investing my money? Is it like ethical? Like they don't know the term ESG, but that's what they're saying to me. So ESG is a thing. And we have this aspirational target relating to we all want electric vehicles and you know we don't want carbon and that's all fine. But I'm just looking at my window here at the moment. And again, I am in God's country, regional Queensland. Here in Toowoomba, I think we have like three charging stations. And the road from Toowoomba to Brisbane, Toowoomba being the second largest inland city in Australia up to Canberra, there are no, no charging stations along the way. This is not going to happen tomorrow. This is a 15, 20 year thing. And uh, I mean, the pressure's coming, Hertz ordering 100,000 Teslas overnight, et cetera, that's great. But this is not gonna turn on a dime. And there's a lot of people throwing the baby out with the bathwater with these environmentally unfriendly companies. We saw it, Henry, with Endeavour, you know, when Debra got spun out of Woolies and it was like 610 or 620 or some crazy florist like that, like you should have been loading your boots up on that. Mm. We're going to see a similar thing with BHP and Woodside, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So very comfortable with fuel. Um, it fits the narrative on many different fronts, but it's a satellite. You know, it's one that you're being a bit more tactically focused. Right. Well, let's move on to a little bit of education then before we hit the third ETF. Factor. What is a factor? Can you explain the factor? It's like, how would I describe it? It's like a, a style. So when you're looking at companies, you might say, what's, what's a determinant of return? You know, is it like, is it a growth company? Is it one that's a value company? So in Australia, value companies might be what, and you're probably going to laugh if I say this, but AGL, arguably, arguably, is a value company. Borrell, 
try and hold it together. Borrell, <laughs> uh, Borrell, before Kerry Stokes came in, was another value play, you know, given the, the destruction that took place under previous management. So yeah. it's value companies, growth companies, Afterpay's the obvious example of a growth company here in Australia. Um, but you've got other ones like um, minimum volatility, you've got momentum, you've got quality, of course, you know, the one factor to rule them all, and size. And so when I'm looking at investments, what you could say, so say things are going a bit pear-shaped market-wise, what do we fall back on? We fall back on telcos, we fall back on healthcare, we fall back on consumer staples because their earnings tend to be a bit more sticky, a bit more defensive. They're examples of value. Whereas when we're all hot and bothered, we tend to chase more the growth style companies. So if from an ETF point of view, instead of trying to pick those individual names, you go, well, what style or factor am I interested in? So a couple of months ago when things were looking a bit ropey, I was buying value ETFs because value ETFs have very little tech exposure. They've got very little exposure to rising bond yields. They've got all the boring stuff or, you know, the market's racing along. I'm buying things with momentum or I'm buying things with growth. But it can be a bit challenging because there's lots of different factors. So what you could potentially do is look at a factor that, look at an ETF rather that encapsulates a few different factors. So my little favorite one is VGMF. And what it does is it actually looks at three factors. It looks at quality, uh, it looks at value, but it also looks at momentum. So it's fine that, you know, something might be cheap, but if it's not moving, it doesn't get bored. So it's in, in the universe in which it's playing in, there's 5,800 companies that it's looking at. So it's a big universe. Wow. There's about 800 that it's actually holding. And again, the average size there is about $22 billion. So again, we're not talking small. It's overweight financials. It's overweight energy, it's overweight material. So again, if we're thinking that inflation is a thing, and I think we're all coming to the conclusion that inflation is a thing, then financials will benefit, energy benefits, materials benefits, but what's gonna come under pressure? Technology, healthcare, and utilities. So, and it's got companies like Freeport, eBay, MetLife, Bancorp, it is unhedged. So if you worry about the dollar, this is maybe not one for you. It's only relatively new, so it's only got about 40 million funds under management. The MER is not too bad for what it's doing, which is about 0.3. That is just one example of factors, but probably the key thing members should be taking away, and I am a very happy member, is that the factor market at the moment is $1.9 trillion. Like, that's a lot of money. That's, that's a lot of money. Boatload of money. But if we fast forward 12 months, forecast to be $3.4 trillion. And my trip to the US in 2018, so for those who want to know more, listen to the last time Henry and I were talking and I spoke at length about my trip to the US, one of the key takeaways apart from ESG being a thing was the other thing is that factor-based investing is where it's at. Factors are going to be huge. There's only five or 10 here in Australia at the moment. If we fast forward 12, 18 months, there's going to be a lot more factors. So I think members need to get their head around factors what factors appeal to you, and then try and find an ETF similar to satellites. You know, it's not a big part of your portfolio, but we here use them in the defensive aspect in particular around value. If things are going pear-shaped and I want to get people defensive quickly, you know, VLUE, VVLU, those styles of ones quickly get us that defensive posture. It's funny, isn't it, that these days we lump companies that are embedded in our lives day-to-day -day companies 
as tech stocks. You know, Apple, a tech stock. You know, Google, a tech stock. Facebook, a tech stock. I mean, I know they are tech stocks, and, and therefore they come off, you know, when NASDAQ comes off, etc. But, you know, something like Apple has got a pile of cash that could buy it a small country where it could then avoid even more tax. And it's it's really so embedded in, in our psyche now, in our brains. We've almost got the Apple chip stuck in the back of our cortex, uh, like the matrix. So it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it? When you're, when you're thinking tech stocks, there, there's tech stocks, I guess, and there's tech stocks. There's, there's, yeah. um, there's, so, there's different ones. So two brief comments about Apple. So back to VGOD for a moment. Number one holding in VGOD. It's about 4% of the portfolio. Okay. Yep. It's market capitalization, 2.46 trillion US dollars. <laughs> What's the size of the Australian economy? About 1.9? We might yep. be knocking on the door of two. Yep. So it's 20, 1.2 times bigger. Sorry, it's 1.2 Australian economies is Apple. Yep. Like, it's just phenomenal. And never mind the cash that they're sitting on. I haven't got that cash number here. It's so, about 220 billion or something stupid. Some stupid number. So they're the three ETFs, my friend. They're the right. so VGOD, Fuel, and VGMF. Excellent. All right. Well, now we're going to talk a couple of stocks now, aren't we, that you've suggested? A couple of companies to think about, one of which I'm actually, both of which I'm surprised that you chose for different reasons. Okay. So let's talk about the first one, which is the big Australian. Uh, I just had a meeting with a client and I said to the client, client, 24 years I've been doing this. I've been looking after you for 20 years. I'm going to say something to you that I've never said to you, client, before. This is a no-brainer. Right. No-brainer. So the, the reason it's a no-brainer on many different fronts, but the first of all is just the numbers. So and I think you've said a couple of these before, my friend. PE of 7, 7% fully frank dividend. That's the forecast, not the past. Forecast 7% fully frank dividend and 11% earnings per share growth. So as you know, I'm a big advocate of the peg ratio. So whereby I'm trying to find a company whose PE is less than the earnings per share growth number. So 11 being the growth number, 7 being the PE. Just forget everything else. Like how often do you find a top five company with that sort of number? Like mm. that's just astounding. So that's that's sort of the opening statement. But then if we drill down a little bit further, the key thing with BHP, and it's been a bit of a theme that we've been talking about today is around the ESG piece, they get it. They get it that 6% of their revenue comes from petroleum and there are some investors who just go too hard, we can't do this anymore. So the spinning out of those petroleum assets, as a BHP shareholder, you'll end up with some Woodside shares. So you're getting basically a free carry on that thematic that we were just talking about before. But you've also then got exposure to copper. Copper's $21 billion in revenue. They make about $11 billion in profit. You've got nickel. You've got uranium. You know, you've got all this sort of greenification stuff. Um, and the cherry on top is that consensus is, I think there's 10 or 11 brokers who follow it, have it at $43 and it's sitting at 37 38 bucks. So you're getting a top quality, top quality company on super compelling financials at a 10% discount to consensus. What could go wrong? 
it's my favourite saying around here in the office, what could go wrong? What could mm -hmm. go wrong? That iron ore price goes back under 100 bucks, and at 57% of the revenue coming from iron ore, that's what's going to cruel this entire thesis. But if iron ore sort of stays where it is, I'm super keen on BHP. I have to say, I, I've been pushing this one for a little while, and like you, I think this is an absolute gimme. This is this is just the stock that you should be buying. They are undergoing the biggest transformation in, I think, corporate Australian history. On a number of fronts, they're saying goodbye to the 20th century and embracing the 21st century with their push into nickel and potash. They have got coal exposure, which they're trying to get out of to some extent, although they're probably happy with the prices at the moment. And they're also trying to get out of the oil and gas business, which again, they're, you know, they're probably not that happy to be in a big rush because it's $85 a barrel. So that alone is transformational plus, and I think this has been the biggest detriment to the share price, is the unwinding of the dual listed structure with London. And the London price forever and a day was at a massive discount to the Australian price. And if you put Humpty together, Humpty's going to have a few cracks. And that's the problem, is that for a long time, we were trading at a premium to London. And then once you take away that premium, we fall. London may go up a little bit. But it takes a while for everyone to get back kind of on the same playing field again. Yep. There's, there's, there's disruption here. So um, I think it's, you know... Even with commodity prices falling 10%, I think it's fantastic. Anyway, I know you've got another meeting to go to, so we'll get on to the last stock. And this, again, this is um, an interesting one. In fact, I've just read the last line of this, so it's even more interesting. So knock yourself out. EOL is the stock. Go. Yeah, so I came across this one, and I think you were part of the panel. This was back in July last year with the Koshmeister. At that stage, the market cap of this particular company was $99 million. So again, so we're in small company land, a red balloon. Uh, so in fact, so Andrew, the used share salesman, if I can speak of myself so eloquently, used to love small caps, not Henry Love, as in like Henry is the guru, you know, I'm the ETF whisperer. I don't know what we call the small cap guru, but... Lucky. <laughs> well, TNT, Axe, I mean, I, I, could go, I, go, I could go on. I think you'll be lucky, kind, unkind to yourself. But used to love small companies and had a number of wins, you know, things like um, uh, SAI Global before the wheels sort of fell off, Invocare, et cetera. So I've always got a, in, in my heart a special part of that is small caps. And I came across this company and I saw Otmar Weiss was a director. And, of course, uh, Henry and I, unbeknownst to each other, ships in the night. But we both <laughs> worked at the Holy Donut in the late 90s, early 2000s. And Otmar was a weapon. Otmar was a weapon. Otmar remains a, wep a weapon. And so I saw him there as a director and I thought, hmm, I should take a close look at this company. So the one we're talking about, no further teasing, EOL. And what it does is it's energy trading software, basically. And so I look at these styles of businesses and my first question is what percentage of their revenue is recurring? And in this particular instance, it's 80%. They've got 200 customers, they operate in 19 countries and places like Europe, in Australia, they've got about 50% market share, less than 5% market share in Europe, albeit I think they just made an acquisition in Belgium recently. 
their customers are like power stations, energy retailers, and their customers, Henry, are super sticky, super sticky. Last year, 97% of their customers renewed and the average profit margins over 60%. Now, members, before you start racing out and buying this one, a cautionary note, $40,000 a day trades on this. If you get all hot and bothered, you are going to push this to the moon. Nobody wants this to the moon. Show some restraint. Be cautious. Take your time. But I really do like this one. I think this one ticks a number of boxes for me, but it's a small cap. It's not BHP. So, you know, 1% or 2% of your portfolio, just steady up. One thing Otmar did know and was very good at was sniffing out an opportunity to make money. I've noticed he's got 3% of this one, around 780-odd thousand shares. So you know, if he's on board this one, that does give it a big tick of approval. As you say, as you rightly point out, Andrew, the number of shares traded is astronomically ridiculous. There's 171 shares traded today in three lines. So getting set could take you a little while unless you want to push things around a bit. So just just... Bear in mind that warning from Andrew on liquidity. Now, that's it. I've got no more questions for you. You'll be brilliant, as usual. The Whisperer strikes again. Fantastic fantastic stuff. Um, Really great. And it's good to get some stocks from you, and I agree wholeheartedly with BHP. It just sticks out like the proverbial to me. It's just extraordinary, but there you go. Um, we shall see. It's, it's kind of weird, though. I've got to say, their communication has been absolutely atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. And a friend of mine has just taken an IR role with BHP in Perth, who I used to work with on, on um, Your Money and Sky Business. You'll remember Caroline Herbert. Mm. And she's now working for BHP. And she phoned me up and asked me what I thought about BHP and whatever. And I just said, you guys have got no idea. Your communication is dreadful. This Woodside deal is massive, and we've heard nothing. The dual-listed structure is massive. We've heard nothing. You know, it's really, really bad, really bad. There's small-cap companies spend their lifetimes um, buttering up the market and telling them what's going on so that market can understand it. BHP has a certain amount of, should we say, swagger and arrogance about their investor relations? Oh, indeed. And if we take our mind back to Microsoft... Right. Mm. So Microsoft for a decade went nowhere, longer. You know, when Bill Gates uh, was in charge and then I'm blanking on the other guy's name and then Sundar Pichar came in and completely changed the communications uh, messaging, that share price went from $100 up to $300. Yeah, it's not difficult. It's really not difficult, but our mining companies seem to have a problem. If it's not Rio blowing up heritage sites and going through CEOs faster than the, the Liberals used to with leaders and the Labour Party with leaders, uh, then it, it's extraordinary. Sorry, I got I just, my CEOs mixed up. Satya Nadella was, sorry, I was getting my Google and uh, um, Microsoft CEOs confused, but you're right. Like when Rio go around blowing up caves, like, you know, like it's just crazy yeah. stuff like BHP I mean, should be absolutely nailing this messaging and they're not even i you know i'm not the smartest cookie in the world if i was the ceo of rio and someone came to me and said do you reckon this is a good idea you go oh yeah of course it is we love blowing up heritage sites it's obviously a great business what were you thinking 
Well, they weren't. And so very briefly, because I know we're going to wrap this up, but coming back to the ESG lens, so what then happens is they, these styles of companies start getting excluded from an ESG point of view. It's a real slippery slope. You know, it's not just you've done a bad thing, but it then feeds into the, um, mm. the support as well, which five, ten years ago wasn't a thing. It's now a huge thing. So if nothing else, do the right thing, because not only are you a bad corporate citizen, not saying Rio is, but just generally, but also then it will impact upon your financial performance as well. Yeah, and it doesn't pass the stupid test. I mean, it's not even ESG, it's just stupid. Anyway, we will forget that. Andrew, it's been an absolute delight. The Whisperer strikes again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm delighted to chat to you outside of the confines of the 10 stocks that we normally get given, some of which are somewhat left field. Uh, And it's been, as usual, an absolute delight. And one day, one day, Fortress Queensland will let us New South Welshmen or Victorians in and we may be able to share a beer at your local theatre. Sounds tremendous. Looking forward to it. Henry, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks very much. My pleasure, mate. Thanks a lot. <laughs>